Last time I was with you, I spoke of the heavenly perspective of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, radiant in glory and in all of his power, uh, shining forth in the presence of John, who fell on his face before the glorious Lord of, of, of heaven as if he were dead. Again, we think of the idea of who are we in the presence of the Holy One of God. And as I was thinking of that, my, my mind was thinking of the heavenly perspective that John beheld and the earthly perspective of the cave on Patmos where he dwelt. And sometimes when we look at life in this world, we can easily become discouraged. Sometimes life in this world takes turns where you end up in a hospital. Or you end up in a nursing home or you end up in hospice and you don't know what the future is going to be and it weighs down on your heart. That's the earthly perspective and how desperately you need to understand the heavenly perspective that this place is not our home. This is not where we're going to spend eternity. Our best days in this life are going to be far below our worst day in heaven, if you can even say such a thing. And we need to have a heavenly perspective as God's people. Yes, we live in the information age where the world is pressing in on you daily with all kinds of information, easily accessible at your fingertips. All you have to do is take out your cell phone. But you need to put that aside sometimes and look to the heavens and remember who your creator is. Remember who your God is. Remember who he is as the Lord of the cosmos. Here in Exodus 14, there is a place here that is unique where the earthly perspective and the heavenly perspective actually clash on the battlefield. The question put forth to God's people is, Whom shall I fear? Whom shall I fear? Egypt at this time was the greatest nation on the planet. Its military was coming forth from Egypt after the ten plagues, bearing down upon the Israelites, meaning to do them considerable harm to try and wipe them out, or at least force them back into the bondage of slavery. And so the Israelites are watching this military might coming their way. And they see the Red Sea on the other side. And they're wondering, what now? What now? Whom shall we fear? Shall we fear God or man? Should we fear the chariots bearing down upon us? Or shall we fear the God who rules over the cosmos? and has revealed his power through the ten plagues against Egypt that encouraged the Pharaoh to let God's people go. When we look at this passage, it looks like the answer should be easy. But is it? Let's look at God's word. Exodus 14, verses 5 through 31. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, 
Pharaoh and his officers changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of his best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh king of Egypt so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near uh, Pi-Hahiroth, opposite of Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there was no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army. Through his chariots and his horsemen, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood, fr- stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel throughout the night. The cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side. So neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. In the morning, watch, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots swerve, so they had a hard, hard time driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the, from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept over them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh, 
that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Let's pray together. Father, instruct our hearts and minds now as your spirit works through your word and enable us to receive it by your power. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Whom shall I fear? That question is addressed by two questions in this text and one statement. The questions are, what have we done? What have we done? The other question is, what have you done? And then the statement is, stand firm and see the salvation of God. The statement is, stand firm and see the salvation of God. The first question is asked by Pharaoh and his officials. The king of Egypt had been mourning the loss of his eldest son as a consequence of the tenth plague that was carried out against Egypt. If you did not have lamb's blood smeared on your doorposts uh, from a sacrificial lamb, then the destroyer, God himself, would come in and destroy every firstborn child of every family who did not have this blood on the doorpost. That includes firstborn animals as well. And so the Pharaoh is mourning the loss of his firstborn son. And while he's mourning this loss, the officials come up and tell him, the Israelites have, have left. When Pharaoh lost his son, he went to Moses or he summoned Moses and he said, leave. And the people of, Israel, or the people of Egypt said the same thing, leave in haste, get out of here lest we all be destroyed by your God. And so they ate a quick meal, the Passover Seder, and then they left that night in haste and left Egypt. Verse 5, one of Pharaoh's servants told the Egyptian king that the people, the Israelites, have fled into the wilderness. Pride rushes through the king's veins uh, and his heart and mind, and it's kindled in his officials who are caught up in the emotion of the moment as they call out together, What have we done? What have we done? that we let Israel go from serving us. I don't want you to miss the pride of what they're saying. <clears throat> Basically, they're saying, we are the greatest nation on the face of this planet. Pharaoh is saying, I am the king of this nation. What have we done that we would allow these slaves to flee into the wilderness? Well, Pharaoh, your own people answered that question, actually, in Exodus 12, verse 33. As they urged the Israelites to leave quickly, and I've said it before or otherwise, we will all die. 
They witnessed the heavenly power of God visiting the earth as his power came against them. And they knew that they could not contend with such divine power. But not Pharaoh and his officials. This is the God complex that so many struggle with. The God complex of pride generated, uh, generating a new passion of vengeance in the heart of Pharaoh as he makes his chariot ready and summons 600 of his finest chariots and charioteers to come with him to fight. And, and that's not the full regiment. That's just the best of the best. That's the A squad. The B and C and D squads are going to follow behind them. He's calling out his whole military entourage. And he's saying, let's go out there and let's teach them a lesson. Verse 9 says, The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, uh, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them, caught up with them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Hahiroth, opposite Baal-Zephon. Now, you read this and you think, as, as believers looking at God's word, reading the story and following the narrative, You read this and you think, okay, after witnessing the might of God coming against you in the plagues, why on earth would you challenge him? (laughs) You just suffered ten plagues that you have no real understanding of how they followed in that specific order and how they came against you. You understand that there's divine power behind it. So why would you challenge this divine being? Well, we can, we're pretty good at rationalizing things, aren't we, as human beings? We can start chalking things up to coincidence. Well, it was just a coincidence that that first plague happened. And the second and third, that was just a coincidence too. You know, when you think about it, one through ten, uh, things like this have happened before on a smaller scale. So, sure, they could happen on a larger scale. It's just a matter of coincidence. It doesn't have to be divine intervention. Don't we think that way today when it comes to God? After all Pharaoh witnessed along with his officials, you would think, though, that they would come to their senses and instead of making up excuses or making up ideas, they would fear God, not challenge him. But this is not what, it, what the scripture means when it says that God, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You know, some people look at fear as a bad thing, and truly you don't want to live in, in a constant state of fear. Or you don't want to be under the control of a specific or particular phobia. But fear is a beneficial emotion in that it warns us of danger. When, the, when that fear stimulus enters your brain through one of your senses, it makes a direct path to the little part of your brain called the amygdala in the center of your brain. This amygdala, when stimulated, signals the pituitary gland to release massive amounts of adrenaline uh, into your system along with uh, cortisol to do one of three things. Fight, freeze, or flee. Fight, freeze or flee. These responses depend on the situation and your personal makeup of who you are. One father recalls standing in the shallow end of the pool 
while watching his daughter and, and other children. This was a neighbor's pool. He's watching his, his daughter and other children doing backflip, backflips off of the deep end of the pool into the water. They would jump up, push off, and, and do a spin and do a little backflip into the water. And he was there having a great time. And then he was watching his daughter, and she accidentally slipped a little bit. Instead of pushing off, she went straight up. And he was watching, and he was already moving. Uh, the adrenaline's already pulsing through his body as he knows that her head is pointed towards the side of the pool. And that's what's going to hit. He could see the trajectory. And so he's trying as fast as he can to wade from the shallow end to the deep end. And, and as he's going, he says, it's like time slows down. You start putting images in your mind of, you know, am I going to be attending her funeral? Is she going to be paralyzed from the neck down and in a wheelchair for the rest of her life? Other scenarios are flowing through his mind as this fear is, is pulsing through his body and he's pushing as hard as he can to get there. And sure enough, when she comes down, her head hits the side of the pool and she splashes into the water. And his heart just basically stops as he's not there yet and hoping things are okay. And as he takes a breath, she comes up out of the water and she's angry. And she shouts out, you know, I'm never going to do a backflip off of the pool, off, off of the side of the pool again. And he has relief. But fear is a powerful emotion, isn't it? as he knew that things could be much worse. She had a goose egg on the side of her head and some scratches, but even though she was in pain, she turned out to be okay. Fear is a powerful emotion, but I would say that pride can be even more powerful because pride can be irrational. I don't know why, but it can be. Even fear can be irrational to some degree, but I would say pride even more so. What causes a person to contend with the Almighty God after God has revealed His power in a limited way? God's desire was not to destroy Egypt, but to teach them who He was, who He is as God. That their gods are all false the whole panoply of their, of their deities is false. That He is the true and living God. He's revealing this to him plague after plague after plague because Pharaoh always hardens his heart. He says, no, I'm God. I'm the one who's in control of these people. I'm in control of these people who you say are your people and you're not going to take them away from me. They are my servants, my slaves, not your people. And God brings another plague. Pharaoh feels the pain of it. And he relents, but he won't let him go. Plague after plague after plague we go until we get to the tenth plague. And God takes Pharaoh's eldest son. And Pharaoh says, go. And then while well, he's, he's even grieving, and his attendant comes to him and says, the people are gone. He, he st starts to flow through his mind. And, and he starts, his pride starts welling up within him. And he just can't let it go. I'm the king here. I'm the Lord. 
not their God. And so he goes after him. And I'm sitting there looking at this going, what is this madness? What is this madness that they would go after God after God has actually been gracious with them, merciful? He could have wiped Egypt off the map. He punished them only so that they would allow his people to be set free. As God is merciful. But we need to understand the irrationality of a hardened heart. (coughs) That we don't take the counsel of God. We are not willing to heed his will. If you uh, are familiar with the sower, the parable of the sower, it's the seed that is sown on the hard, on the path, on the hard ground. It doesn't penetrate. And as it doesn't penetrate, the birds of the air come and take it away. Jesus explains the meaning of this in Matthew 13, verse 19. He says, when anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. Satan snatches it away before it can be received. And Jesus is talking like this about the Jews themselves who he's speaking to them in parables because they are not listening to God's word plainly. So it has to be spiritually discerned. Matthew 13 verses 14 and 15. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused, hardened hearts. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. This is the pride that does not fear God. Behind your wealth and power and privilege or whatever you think makes you, gives you security in this world, You believe that you are invincible, but that kind of pride is sheer vanity. They have asked, what have we done? Well, Pharaoh and officials, if you continue to pursue God in this fashion, you will be destroyed. You know the story. You've already heard it. What happens? They were destroyed. Same is true for us today. So whom shall I fear? There are some who do not fear God out of ignorance, I would say, and do not fear man because uh, they have sought to place themselves in positions of authority over others. This world is all they know, and it's what they seek to gain from it that matters, so they strive to gain whatever they can before their time is up. Well, The second question looks or seems as irrational as the first, The question is asked by the Jews as they see the Egyptian military bearing down on their position. They ask Moses in verse 11, What have you done? You're our leader. What have you done to us? (laughs) Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. And I just, again, just beside myself when I read this. 
And I'm thinking, weren't you there when the plagues took place? Weren't you there? Did you not see the power of God revealed? Do you not have that heavenly perspective ingrained in your mind? As to how God delivered you, you didn't deliver yourselves. You were slaves. You didn't have any swords or spears or chariots or bows or arrows. You didn't have anything. You didn't even know how to fight. How did you get out of Egypt? Save for the power of God. And now you fear Pharaoh and his army instead of the living God? God sent them down to the Red Sea for a reason. He wanted to show them that He alone is their salvation. You don't put faith in anything or anyone else. God alone is your Savior. Well, our sinful, prideful hearts do not allow us to understand reality very well. Uh, Because we're sinners, we are wired to fear the temporal powers that govern us while mocking the eternal power of overall existence. We fear the one who can kill the body and scoff at the one who has power to cast us into hell forever. Just consider how people respond to a report in the media versus how they respond to the Word of God these days. Even so, Job 14, 1-2 says, Man born of woman is of few days and full of trouble. He springs up like a flower and withers away like a fleeting shadow. He does not endure. We've been singing about shadows. Shadows are just temporary. They're here for a little while and then they're gone. In Marie Beth Jones' uh, Tales of the Brazos, as in the Brazos River in Texas, she tells of a Dr. William F. Bruner who was one of the first doctors... Uh, that would later, that served in what would later become the city of Angleton, Texas. One day, Dr. Bruner was called to treat a gunshot wound uh, from that uh, a young man suffered in his hip. The young man told Dr. Bruner what had happened. He said, "Well, I, I I'd seen a shadow on the way to my girlfriend's house, and I just knew it was my rival, the one who was rivaling." trying to uh, uh, entreat her with his affections. He was my rival for her affections. I'd known my rival might be there, so I brought a gun for protection. But when I saw the shadow, and I started running for the woods and reached for my gun, but it was too late, a shot rang out, and I realized that the rival's bullet had struck me in the hip. Well, Dr. Bruner examined his wound, asked about the distance of the shooter. He looked at the pants the man was wearing and noted the damage to them. Then he looked over to the pistol the young man had been carrying for protection. Dr. Bruner's conclusion, uh, the shadow that the patient had been running from was his own shadow. And he had been so panic-stricken that he had managed to shoot himself. It's not easy to see it this way because our eyes are what we use to try and make sense of this world in which we live. But oftentimes we're more scared of our shadows or of, of things that are of, of, of flesh and blood, of, of the image of God that is temporary than that which is permanent, that which is eternal, that which is unseen. 
The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 12, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is on, on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We fear the image of God, the temporary shadow of the flesh, instead of fearing our eternal Creator who is forever to be praised. Fear is good when it warns us of danger, but we need to look more deeply at our existence when we fear man rather than God. God is the one who must be feared, and Moses reminds the people of it, of this in verse 13, and here is the statement. Do not fear. Do not fear. Stand firm and see the salvation of God. Verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And the Lord speaks to Moses. And to paraphrase, God's saying, why are you crying out to me? Get the people moving. Get things in process here. I'm in charge. I'm taking care of this. Now follow my orders. Follow my will. God has one more lesson to teach Egypt and his own people regarding who he is as the Almighty. And this is an echo from the great deluge of Noah's time when God judged the earth with water. This time the waters part in the Red Sea for God's people so that they can walk on dry land but close over their pursuers, Pharaoh and his army. What we need to look at here particularly is how God protects his people. Look in your Bibles at verses 19 and 20. It says, The angel of God who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. Did you hear in any testimony before this that the angel of God was there? No, you don't. This is the first moment that he appears. And he is present. But he has been with them the whole time. And so he's manifested here. And he goes from from leading them to going behind them setting up a wall between them and the Egyptians. He is the one warrior who's going to fight on their behalf. Who do you think he foreshadows? If not Christ Jesus. He withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them. Coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel, the pillar of cloud is usually referenced to God the Father. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other side so that neither went near the other all night long. Next, God tells Moses to hold his staff over the sea, and you know what happened there. The Egyptians see all of this. This Again, this baffles my mind at how pride can drive us to do totally irrational and foolish things. They're witnessing the sea part. They know that this is the hand of God. And yet they're still foolish enough to pursue the Israelites with all this taking place. Eventually, uh, God is looking down and you see the threefold witness, the triune witness, the pillar of cloud referencing the Father, the pillar of fire referencing the Holy Spirit, and, and the angel of the Lord referencing uh, Jesus Christ. It is a triune work of God to protect and preserve his people here in this world. So 
God frustrates the Egyptians and the wheels start falling off of their chariots and they're scrambling around and, and they're in confusion. And they, they cry out, the Egyptians cry out, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Now you can't see this in English, but do you know what's extremely significant about that statement? They don't say Israel's God is fighting against us. They say the Lord. The NIV always translates God's personal name as the Lord. God's personal name is Yahweh. And so the Egyptians are crying out, Yahweh is fighting against us. They knew who Yahweh was because of the plagues. And now they behold him again and bear witness that this is it. We are out of here. Uh, we, we are supposed to serve you, Pharaoh. I know we're supposed to be devoted to you, but we are out of here. God himself is fighting against us, and we will not win this war. But you know what? It's too late. Because as they're trying to escape, the waters that were parted fold over them and drown them all in God's judgment. Verses 30 through 31 state, That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, all the people feared the Lord and put their faith in him and Moses his servant. Whom shall I fear? Five-year-old Johnny was in the kitchen as his mother made supper. She asked him to go into the pantry and get her a can of tomato soup. Well, she had a large pantry and there was no light in there, so it was dark in there. And he didn't want to go alone. He was just a little boy. So he said, no, I, I really don't want to go. And, and he persisted in not wanting to get her a can of soup. She said, you know what, it's okay. Jesus will be in there with you. And so he... He went over there, looked in the pantry, didn't see anybody in there, and was about ready to walk away. When all at once he, an idea came to his mind, he went back to the pantry and he said, Jesus, if you're in there, would you hand me that can of tomato soup? Can you do something for me, Jesus, that I cannot do for myself? Can you go into the darkness? Can you go into the unknown? that I fear and can you secure a place for me there when you're on your deathbed and you don't know what the future holds you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death and you don't know what's on the other side isn't it good to know that Jesus is already there and he's prepared a place for you and that place that he's prepared is an eternal place for you The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, 8-10, None of the rulers of this age understood the secret wisdom of God, the salvation of God. For if they had, they would, have not, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen nor ear has heard, no mind has conceived that God, what God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed it to us 
by his spirit. You cannot understand the wisdom of God and his great salvation through his grace unless the spirit reveals it to you. Then you can behold not only the earthly perspectives of flesh and blood, ages and empires that are here today and gone tomorrow. You can also behold the heavenly perspective of the risen, radiant, and holy Christ Jesus who was dead, died on the cross here in this world, but rose from the grave and is alive forevermore, who has gone before us to prepare a place for us so that where he is, we may be also forever. We're going to go back next week to Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, to look again at that heavenly perspective of who the risen Lord is. Because we need to see Him in all His glory. And I think about it this way. If my faith is in Christ Jesus who has conquered the darkness, who has conquered the power of sin and death, even the devil, then whom shall I fear? If your faith is in Christ Jesus, whom shall you fear? Consider the words of this Chris Tomlin song. He says, you hear me when I call. You are my morning song. Though darkness fills the night, it cannot hide the light. Whom shall I fear? I know who goes before me. I know who stands behind. The God of angel armies is always by my side. The one who reigns forever. He is a friend of mine. The God of angel armies is always by my side. Whom shall I fear?